Well, hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Vineyard. Um, I'm thrilled that you're here with us to start this new series uh, on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So if, you, if you're not super, super familiar with your Bible, we're looking at one of the, the pastoral letters of Paul. It's in the New Testament, just there a few books after the Gospels. Um, and as a team, we talked about this. We decided that we wanted to teach all the way through one of the New Testament letters this summer uh, for a couple of reasons. And so we ended up picking Ephesians because really we have to decide who we're going to be as a church, as Oxford Vineyard. We're, we're going to be known for some things in this city, whether we like it or not. The, the truth is that we have a reputation when we're tied to, uh, to a church like this, when we're tied to a body of believers. And our church mission is to disciple a church of passionate lovers of Jesus, walking daily in the power, presence, and love of the Holy Spirit. And what's, what's foundational to that is understanding who we are as individuals and as a community in light of what Jesus has done for us. And Ephesians does a beautiful job of unpacking and explaining that. So for the next nine weeks, we're going to be reading and preaching through Ephesians. And so we just want to encourage you to, uh, to read the book of Ephesians along with us and really take your time through it. It's six chapters long, uh, and, and they're not super long chapters. And so, you know, even if you read a verse or two of the book of Ephesians every day, by the end of that nine weeks, you will have made your way all the way through the book. Uh, it's very, very manageable, and it's super encouraging. You know, the book of Ephesians, uh, it was written to the church in Ephesus. I think I have a little map in my slides. It's in modern-day Turkey, across the Aegean Sea from Greece. No map? Oh, there's no map. I thought I'd put a map in there. Well, either way, um, it's in modern-day Turkey across the Aegean Sea from Greece, and Paul was there preaching for three years as Paul traveled around uh, and, and planted churches and preached the gospel. And what makes Ephesians unique is that Paul really loved the church in Ephesus. Uh, he was fond of the, all the churches that he worked with, but Ephesus in particular, he spent a long time there. He got to know the people there. He was a church planter there. He actually equipped missionaries to go out from Ephesus. And so when Paul's writing to these people, he's not just writing a letter of instruction. He's actually writing to his friends. And so when I read this book and I think about our church and I think about my friends in the church, um, it's encouraging to me as a pastor, but also as your friend, because these are things that I'm thinking about and praying for all of you week in and week out. And, and I hope that as you read it, you feel the same way about your friends in this church and your friends in this city, that the things that, oh, they, hey, there it is. Yeah, so that little uh, red flag right there, that's, uh, that's Ephesus. So that's, that's where these people were. Cool. Um, but anyway, our mission statement, what it means to be people who are walking daily in the power, presence, and love of the Holy Spirit, it means that we're giving ourselves to the work of learning to pursue Jesus and to form our lives around the way that Jesus' life was. That's not an easy task. 
It's really not. There are, there are a lot of churches out there that are about, you know, thinking the right things and believing the right things and being able to repeat or memorize the right things. But it's a much more difficult task to actually form our lives around the way that Jesus lived, to view people the way that Jesus viewed people, to view God the way that Jesus viewed God. And I think that Ephesians is going to help us do that. You know, we're talking about a, a, a characteristic temperament that will define us in this city. When people hear, oh, you go to the vineyard, they'll have some idea that, you know, those people, they're not just about believing the right things. They're not just about having the right things, you know, posted for people to see or whatever. They're about doing the hard work of living the kind of life that Jesus calls us into. And so the Apostle Paul was one of the most brilliant minds in the history of humankind. Not just one of the most brilliant church leaders of all time, but Christian and secular scholars alike agree that Paul was a genius. So far as we can tell, based on what he wrote and what we know about him, Paul was actually in the same category as Newton and Einstein and some of the greatest minds that have ever walked the planet. We actually, we, we have that on pretty good authority from what we know about him, that he was one of the most brilliant people who ever lived. His ministry was dynamic, and he proclaimed the gospel in power, and he was a pioneer of the early church because he dared to pledge his allegiance only to Jesus in an age when that was a major risk. Paul's ministry was empowered by the Spirit more than it was empowered by his intellect. More than Paul had persuasive words to say, he came with power. And that's the sort of life that we want to live, wouldn't you agree? I mean, how many of you were, were with us last week for Jay's talk about Pentecost? What a great talk, and he even talked about Alpha, which wasn't planned, but man, how great was that? And, and so, when we're thinking about Paul, we need to make sure that we're thinking about Paul in the right order. See, for a long time in the Protestant church at large, and in evangelical churches, when we think about the gospel, what we often do is we read Paul first, and then we read the gospels. We read, we read the gospels, and we think about the good news of Jesus in light of what Paul wrote. But what we need to make sure that we're doing is we need to make sure we're reading Paul's writing in light of the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus preached. And I think if we're not careful, if we start with Paul and then we think about the gospel, we'll come to some conclusions that are maybe slightly off from what Jesus would have had for us. And so one of the things that we want to think about throughout this series is, you know, we're going to focus a lot on our identity in Jesus and, and who we are as followers of Jesus. It would be really easy for us if we start with Paul and then think about the gospel to think that, that identity is about you as an individual. But the truth about Paul is that Paul wasn't a Christian the way we think about being Christians. Paul was a faithful Jew who had decided to follow Jesus, the Jewish Messiah King. And so Paul was thinking in different categories, maybe than we often do, about the gospel and about what identity means. We live in a moment where it's popular to define ourselves, to find within us 
what sort of person we are and, and to use our circumstances and the things that we can see around us to put together a picture of, of who we are as individuals, unique and carving out our own place in the world. But the way that Paul understood who we are is that we, we're actually part of a family first. We're part of a group first, our group identity as the people of God. And we receive individual identities through that group identity. See, Paul was a Jew, and so the Jewish people understood that they had been chosen by God. They had been selected and singled out for special purposes by God. And because they were a part of that group, that led them into an understanding of who they were as people. And so if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, this is really hard for our Western American minds to to really get a hold of. But you are who you are because you have become a part of the family of God. And because God has chosen and selected you for good works, and we're going to talk a little bit more about what that means too, but because God has chosen and selected you, then you receive an identity from God that is who you are in the world. And the beautiful thing about that is that Culture in this current moment has a few things right. God actually wants you to be who you are. God designed you uniquely with, with special characteristics and gifts, and there are things about you that God relishes in because he created you that way. And you will find the fullest expression of that in community. You'll find the fullest expression of that in the family of God. And so we can't have one without the other. Because if we try to have an identity all on our own, we'll go out and we'll craft it ourselves. And ultimately, we'll be be trying to save ourselves by the, the sorts of people that we are, virtuous and good and whatever. And if we go the other way and we only find our identity in the group, we'll lose the unique and special things that make you who you are to the fact that you've you've given it all up just to conform. The kingdom of God exists in the space between those two ideas. That's so important. Yeah, that's right. That's so important. So this letter was written uh, by Paul from prison in Rome in the early 60s AD. So about 30 years after Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead. Um, Paul planted this church, and Ephesians sort of has two parts, and I think you'll start to see this as we go through this book. The first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul's talking about the gospel, and he's actually talking about uh, the good work that God has done for all people through Christ and by the Spirit. And then the second part of the book, the second half, chapters four through six, which are actually a little bit longer, talk more specifically about what the good news, what the gospel means for the lives of people and how they might live their lives in view of what Jesus has done for them. So the first three chapters are broad. They're about the truths about what God has done. And then the last three chapters are about how we live our lives in view of what God God has done for us. So I want to talk a little bit before we start reading this passage about the book of Exodus. So the book of Exodus, second book in the Bible, contains the story of the people of Israel being called by God 
and being rescued out of slavery in Egypt and being given a unique call to be faithful to God and really to be a, a vehicle for God's grace to all the watching world around them. Something that's very interesting to me, um, I, I've been fortunate to be a part of a group of vineyard pastors studying under Dr. Derek Morphew, a South African theologian who has been running a mentoring program for young vineyard leaders uh, for the last several years. And so in the next two years, you'll probably hear a little bit about him and a little bit about the work that we're doing. But right now, we're studying the connections between uh, the kingdom of God, the gospel Jesus preached, and the story of the Exodus. And I don't know if I had ever quite made the connection to just how significant the story of the Exodus is for the entire narrative of the Bible. But Exodus contains the blueprint for the gospel. I don't know if you knew this, but the Exodus story is referenced 170 times throughout the rest of the Old Testament after the Exodus takes place. Isn't that interesting? There are 170 times that the, that the Old Testament authors will say, remember when God brought you out of Egypt. They'll recount and retell the entire story at different times. And, and that strikes us as significant because the Exodus, like I said, is the blueprint for the gospel. It's the closest that we get to the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus preaches in the Old Testament. I think that's why God instructs the people to tell it, tell it over and over again, tell it to one another, tell it to your children, recount this story, and you can see that the authors of the Hebrew Bible are faithful to do that. And I think it's actually what Paul does in the beginning of this passage. Look at this quote from Dr. Morphew. He writes in his book, Breakthrough, the picture of the kingdom in the Exodus points forward to the fulfillment of the kingdom in Jesus Christ. Just as God came down and intervened for his people Israel, so in Jesus Christ, God intervened for the sake of lost humanity. As Jesus cast out demons, healed the sick, stilled the storm, and raised the dead, he was invading the prison house of the strong man and setting the captives free. What Paul's writing in Ephesians is about being set free from everything that you are captive to in your life. Even as someone who's decided to call yourself a follower of Jesus, there are more likely than not things that you are still captive to. And the good news of Jesus is that just like the Exodus story, God is bringing you freedom and deliverance from the things that you are captive to. I think this story is significant because when we think about reading the Bible, this is very interesting because we have a hard time justifying Jesus with the picture of God that we see in the Old Testament. Or at least I do sometimes. I don't know if you've ever felt that way, where you read the Old Testament and you think, God is doing all these things and saying all these things and it just, I don't understand why it is this way. And we get to the New Testament and we see Jesus and we say, that I can sign up for. Has anyone else ever had that experience or, or is it just me? Oh, yeah. yeah. And so here's the helpful way to think about this. This is the way that I've come to think about this, is when I read stories like the Exodus, we can see the blueprint of what God is about to do in Christ all the way through. And so what we have is the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow. 
we can see the echoes of the story. You know, God is the, God is the greatest poet that's ever been. Because one stanza isn't exactly the same as the next one, but they definitely rhyme. And what we see is that the whole Bible from beginning to end is, hey, all right, we're still praying at 1102, come on. The whole Bible from beginning to end is inerrant. Have you ever heard that word inerrant? Let me explain to you how it's inerrant. The Bible is inerrant from beginning to end, that means without error, in its mission to point people to the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus preached. And so every single story, every single happenstance, every single stroke of the pen from the prophets in the Old Testament that we don't understand, what is there, what is present, is the blueprint of the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus preaches when he shows up on the scenes in, in the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So we can rest assured that when we see echoes of that gospel in stories like the Exodus, that God has been up to the same thing from the beginning all the way up to now, and he will be the same forever and ever. The details and the intricacies of that are sometimes hard for us to understand, but if we zoom out, I think it's really helpful to see how God does this. So let's look at this. In the Exodus story, God reveals himself to Moses in the divine name. He tells Moses his name. He reveals himself to him. He says, I am who I am. And then he chooses Israel as his covenant people. And Moses is given the task of redeeming the people by delivering them from slavery in Egypt. And one by one, as we read the Exodus story, Moses undermines the authority of the spiritual powers that were worshipped in Egypt until none remain to oppose the Lord. And at last, Israel is brought out of captivity and they enter a covenant with God that is intended uh, not only to provide them with basic guidelines for how to live faithfully before God, but it's also to signal to the watching world that the God of Israel is king of the universe and the world isn't left watching from the outside because God lets them know that you're to be a light to the nations. That from the very beginning, when God chooses this covenant people, they were not saved for their own sake. They were saved for the sake of the project that God was up to in the entire world. And we see that come to fruition in Jesus. So Paul opens the letter with a greeting, and then he writes... Just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love, he destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. So friends, if you're hearing this, God has either established that relationship with you or you are being beckoned by the architect of everything this very moment to start to pay attention. Can you think of a time when you experienced what it felt like to be chosen by God? I want you to just reflect on that for a second. Can you think of a time in your life when you experienced what it felt like to be chosen by God?
I want to tell you a quick story about the first time I can really remember experiencing something like that. I had been following Jesus for probably at least a year when I took my first short-term mission trip to Brazil. And it was extremely chaotic getting to Brazil. Bree remembers. Our group got divided, and we, half of us missed our flights, and half of us had to wait in Rio for the other half to show up for like 12 hours sleeping in the airport. And we ended up actually like getting a little tour of Rio in kind of a sort of sketchy situation. Guy with a van didn't speak much English, but he was like, let me show you around. So we got a little tour. It was cool. But our group finally got back together, and we had a long drive from the airport to the small town that we were going to spend our time in uh, called Aguas Belas. And so when we were on our way to Aguas Belas, it was late at night, and we left the airport at maybe midnight or one in the morning, and this four-hour drive was through the night. And we had hired a van driver who spoke no English whatsoever. But somehow I had ended up in the front seat uh, of the of the van, and there was somebody else that was that was there with me, and we were talking a little bit. Everybody else in the van was asleep, and we were trying our absolute best to have a conversation with this guy. One of the people that was with us spoke just a little bit of Portuguese, that was still awake, and um, he had a. There's a lot of Catholics in Brazil, so he had the rosary beads hanging from his uh, from his rearview mirror, but he was. I mean, he loved Jesus. This guy had a an intimate relationship with God. And I can remember very distinctly sitting in that van late at night, full of sleeping people, just trying so hard to have a conversation with this guy, having this realization, I would say by the Holy Spirit, that this man who has nearly nothing in common with me is my brother in Christ. And, and the, the, the things that he's given his life to and the ways that he moves in church community and just the fact that he was even picking us up in this van to drive us back to this remote city for no pay. We had this, this kinship, this bond that I can't describe any other way than just a realization that all over this entire planet, God has singled people out for his purposes and that this, this guy, who I'd never met, whose name I don't even remember anymore, was my brother. And the, 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 he was with us for much of the rest of the trip, and the, the closeness that we shared across language barriers and across cultural barriers was an awakening for me about the project that I was really a part of. That God has good and important work prepared for each of us, and I'm here to tell you that if you're, if you're listening to this, if you're sitting in one of these seats and you're thinking to yourself, I'm not exactly sure what my place is in all this, you have a place in all this. That God has designed uh, a, a role, a unique niche in the kingdom for you to operate in, and it's of crucial importance that you are the person who's fulfilling that role. So this passage raises a question about all sorts of issues, all sorts of things that we, that we think about and debate about predestination and free will 
And, you know, does God choose us or do we choose God? Is each of our ultimate destiny prepared for us before the beginning or do we even have a choice in the matter? And I want to propose to you that when we ask questions like that, what we do is we actually create a false dichotomy between two things that are simultaneously true in the kingdom of God. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham to follow him. It's the first time that this word election appears in the scriptures. Abraham was elect, he was chosen for God's purposes. But God also tells Abraham that in him, all the families of the earth will be blessed in perpetuity for the rest of history. God tells Abraham that in him, in the one who's elect, in the one he chose, all the families of the earth will be blessed forever. So what we see is that Abraham is chosen and saved not only for his own sake, not only for his own family's sake, but for the sake of the rest of the world. And so what I want to say to you is that if you've heard preaching or if you've been under a theological framework that says that you are, are saved, you're part of the elect, you're one of the few for your own sake, for the sake of your own eternal destiny, the truth is that you have been predestined for everything that's been prepared for you by God for the sake of those who don't know him yet, just like Abraham. It's not one or the other, it's both. So like Paul writes here, you've been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world for adoption into the family of God. That's the starting place for how we understand who we are in Jesus. And so we're gonna talk about identity more for the next eight weeks after this, but we have to understand that if you're in this room, if you're thinking about walking the way of Jesus, you have been predestined for adoption into a family. This isn't just a church where we come to sit and you know, hear a, a mediocre word and then go on our way. This is a family of followers of Jesus with some major dysfunctions. But a family nonetheless. You've been chosen for adoption into the family of God. It's a starting place for how we understand ourselves. People all around you ache to be a part of something like what the body of Christ offers to human beings. And it's for the sake of those who have not yet experienced adoption that God has gathered you in. So let's go on to the next part of Ephesians 1. Paul writes, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Redemption has been the story of the people of God from the very beginning. We see it in the Exodus story. They've fallen into slavery. They've fallen out of their destiny in many ways. And God selects them. God picks them out of Egypt. God redeems them from Egypt. And the good news of Jesus is that you and I 
have been redeemed and forgiven because of the work that Jesus did on our behalf, much like the people of Israel in the Exodus story. And I want to suggest to you that redemption has a couple of meanings, and I think evangelicals have put undue weight on one of them. Redemption can mean to compensate for the faults of something. And I think a lot of times when we talk about that word redemption in the church, we're, we're talking about it um, kind of in a very sin-centric way. There are a lot of churches that love to talk about how evil and bad you are, how evil and bad people are, and just how corrupt they are before they decide to follow Jesus. And then even after they decide to follow Jesus, you're still very evil and very bad and very corrupt. Uh, but Jesus has redeemed you. That's, that's the way that a lot of people think about this word redemption. And what I want to suggest to you is that to some degree that's true, but there's another meaning of the word redemption that is also just as true for us. Because redemption can also mean to regain possession of something in return for payment. And so the truth is that from the beginning, humanity belongs to God. God created human beings in his image and likeness. And so when Paul writes about redemption, what he's actually saying is that you have been returned to God in exchange for payment. And the coolest thing about payment is that, you know, some, some people get really nervous about this idea because it's like, did God pay off the devil to get you back? Like, did the devil get something out of the deal? Let me tell you something. When Jesus died on the cross... He went and he, he preached the gospel to the pit of hell. He preached the gospel to death and blew a hole out the other side. So not only did God pay off death to get you back, but God actually got the payment back, which was himself. Do you hear that? So there's no reason to be nervous about this idea of, of like God paying off Satan to get you back. Uh, there will be people out there who will say, oh, that's bad, that's, you know, whatever, you're going down a slippery slope. But the truth is that that's the meaning of redemption when Paul talks about redemption. The process of living into this new reality where you belong to God is what we call sanctification. This is a fancy church word for, like, being made new. Paul talks about putting on the new self. He talks about living in this new reality because of what Jesus has done, because of who you now are, because of his sacrifice, because you've been bought back to God, that you are being made new. You're being made into a new person. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great Lutheran theologian and leader in the anti-fascist church in Germany during World War II, wrote this in his classic work, The Cost of Discipleship. He wrote, sanctification, being made new, means that Christians have been judged already and that they are being preserved until the coming of Christ and are ever advancing toward it. So in other words, you hear even Jesus talk about that, that all things in the end will be divided good from evil, that evil will be judged. And what Dietrich Bonhoeffer is saying here, what Paul is saying about you and I, is that by trusting Jesus, by allowing Jesus to be the king of our lives, we have actually already passed through the end time judgment and have been judged not on the basis of what you and I have done in our lives, but on the basis of the life of Jesus. That's a big deal. 
Because what that means is that you can live in freedom to be the person that Jesus has made you to be, to discover the identity that God is giving to you as a part of the covenant people of God and not have to worry about working it all out in the process. Does that make sense? So that brings us to the bit here before we go to the end. Paul writes, In Christ we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we who were the first to set our hope on Christ might live for the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit, that this is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's people to the praise of his glory. That's a lot of word salad. But the gist of this is that the inheritance here is new life. That by joining your life to Jesus' life, we receive the power to live in victory over sin. We receive the forgiveness of sin, freedom from everything you're captive to, and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. The seal of the promised Holy Spirit is that you would walk in this new understanding of who you are as a person chosen by God before the foundations of the world, redeemed by Jesus, and sealed by the promised Holy Spirit to invite other people into new life. It doesn't just stop with sealed by the Holy Spirit. A lot of us would stop there. A lot of us would say, all right, I'm good to go. That's the individualistic gospel that once we've been chosen by God and redeemed by Jesus and sealed with the Holy Spirit, then we, we wait until it's our time to depart. But the truth is, all that has been done for you for the sake of other people. So Paul concludes, this is my favorite part of this whole thing, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, and for this reason I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may perceive what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to the working of his great power? And I'll just tell you, this is the prayer that I'm praying for our church for the next nine weeks as we, as we go through this book because as we journey through Ephesians together, my hope is that the eyes of our hearts would be opened, that we would perceive the hope to which he has called us, and that this great power that raised Jesus from the dead, that we would become more and more aware of that power working in us. And I just want to pause for a moment on one thing that Paul said there um, about the hope to which God has called you, that you may perceive what is the hope to which he has called you. I had, a, I had a really interesting thing happen just this past week. I had two conversations with people separately, uh, but I, it, was, it was interesting because it was like, wow, maybe God's trying to get my attention about something. Bree and I were at a grad party last Sunday, and uh, it was for my cousins, and so there was a whole bunch of my extended family there, you know, the people who will talk to you for like an hour and a half, and it's like, I'm not sure if I remember your name. 
And this one woman pulled up a seat, and when people know that you're a pastor, it just is like, there's just, there are just moments where it's like, make it stop. But she, she's talking, and she's talking, and she's talking, but then she said something really interesting that caught my attention um, several minutes in. Uh, she, she said this, she, and it was clear that she was like, you know, very, very hardline politically conservative in a church that was sort of in that, you know, they're really doing that thing. But she said this to me. She said, I noticed that all the news that I was listening to and everything that I was reading on Facebook and just all this stuff that I was giving my mind over to made me a hateful person. And so I stopped, and I started painting. And God talks to me when I paint. And when she told me that, like, her whole countenance changed. And it was very, very clear to me that the hope to which she was called was coming to her by way of changing her habits. It was coming to her by way of recognizing the fact that this thing that she was giving all of her time and all of her attention to, that she had probably justified on the basis of her spirituality and her relationship with God, was sucking the life right out of her. And when she recognized the hope to which she was called and decided to start painting, God started speaking to her. And I just want to I just want to suggest that if there are moments in your life where you're thinking to yourself, I I would love to hear God more clearly. I would love to have a more intimate relationship with God, like some of these people that I see around me. You know, they hear from God all the time and they just love him and they love the scriptures and they love Jesus and they're running hard after God. And how do I do that? How do I have that kind of life? What is distracting you from the hope to which you are called? What sorts of things are taking up your time or taking up your attention that might sap the power of God working within you to know, to perceive the hope to which you're called? In, in his superb biography of the Apostle Paul, one of my favorite theologians, N.T. Wright, writes this about the good news that Paul proclaims in Ephesians. He said, God will put the whole world right at the last. He has accomplished the main work of that in Jesus and his death and resurrection. And through the gospel and the spirit, God is now putting people right so that they can be both examples of what the gospel does and agents of future transformation in God's world. So what he's saying to you is that the gospel is coming to you, both to change you and to make you a powerful agent of the, of the power of the Holy Spirit to the watching world around you. Everything that Paul prays in that prayer, that, our, that the eyes of our understanding would be opened and that we would perceive the hope to which we are called is to, to that end. So that we would both see what God's up to in the world, which is actually putting it right, not putting in the bin so he can make a new one, and putting you right 
so that you can, in turn, help him put it right. Does that make sense? And so what I want to say is, if you've come to this place this morning carrying guilt, if you find yourself feeling defeated by patterns of thinking or habits that you can't overcome, if you're a slave to your past, constantly being jerked around by past traumas that have power over you and that have power over your thoughts, if you're seeking after power in all the wrong ways, Jesus wants to meet you in that today. That's the beginning of understanding who we've been made in Jesus is actually allowing him to call the shots. And so I just want to invite everybody to stand and if you're able and our prayer team, uh, they're going to make their way to the back. And so just as a gentle invitation, if you've never made the decision to make Jesus the Lord of your life, we want to give you an opportunity to do that today. Um, if you've heard what I've been saying, or even if you just woke up from a nice nap, now is your opportunity to draw a line in the sand, to make a decision to follow Jesus, uh, and, and to allow him to do that work in your life of realizing the hope that you're called to, of helping you to overcome the things that you are, are enslaved to. And likewise, if you need prayer for anything in your life, whether that's physical, spiritual, emotional, uh, we're going to have our prayer teams in the back, and we're going to have some folks up here at one of the communion stations uh, when we take communion after this next song. Uh, they're going to be praying and giving people words of encouragement. So we'll sing this song first, and, and then I'll come back up and we'll do communion. But uh, during that time, feel free to, to come for an encouraging word from them as well. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to worship together. God, we thank you for everything that you've done for us. Lord, we thank you that, that you have called us into your glorious light, that, that there are, there's a place in this family of yours that's been prepared for us, that we've been predestined for from the beginning of everything. Would you just make that more real to us this morning, God? Father, we, we thank you that you have redeemed us, that you have bought us back from the powers of, of evil for your sake, that we're joined to your family, that we're joined to your light. And Lord, we thank you that you have given us a purpose that with this redemption, there's a mandate to share it with other people. To, to hold it before the watching world and invite people into your family. And so I, I pray for the empowerment of your spirit right now as we worship to bring that life and that light to our neighbors, to our friends, to folks who, who, who don't know this about you or who maybe even have a skewed view of what it means to be a part of the family of God. I pray that you give us grace and generosity and kindness to extend to those people that we would have uh, just the, the wisdom and the insight not to win arguments, but to win friends. And that you truly are the one that calls people to yourself, God. So we, we call on you to do that work. And we just come before you with open hands and ask that you would be so gracious to let us participate, let us help. Jesus' name, amen.